Welcome to Trailhead Church. Um, happy Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. Um, it was Martin Luther King who said, uh, darkness can't drive out darkness, only light can do that, and hate can't drive out hate, only love can do that. So, a good weekend to remember a truly prophetic voice for our, for our generation. Um, secondly, happy anniversary, y'all. I don't know if you know it, but today is our seven-year uh, anniversary or birthday. I never really know what to call it, but it was seven years ago on this Sunday that I stood up to give the first sermon at uh, Trailhead Church. Um, and uh, amazingly, some of you sitting here today were actually in that room. Um, and uh, sometimes it feels like it was just yesterday, and sometimes it totally feels like dog years. Um, it's like 49 years ago. Um, but, uh, but man, what an incredible journey. And so happy anniversary, you guys. And um, thank you for being part of it um, with me. I honestly, uh, this has been the greatest honor of my entire life and the greatest joy. I've never been more challenged. And I have never been able to put my energy into something so rewarding uh, as being the pastor of Trailhead Church. And so... Um, what I love about this, honestly, is that it's not, it's not me. I mean, I have, from the beginning, the Lord has brought a pool of people, committed, sacrificial, talented, passionate people who have helped to create an incredible community here, and, um, and it is a joy to be part of. A um, uh, little pastor insider stuff. Uh, not every pastor loves their church. I'm just, I, I have enough pastor friends to know. Um, I absolutely love my church. Um, there is no place I'd rather be. And, um, and I love you guys, and I'm very thankful for the opportunity I've had to uh, serve in the capacity of lead pastor, but also just to, to experience community, being a community on mission. Um, so uh, happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. We've got some fun stuff coming up uh, that I want you guys to know about. Um, in two weeks, we have our Trailhead United service. Whenever we have our anniversary, we try to have an anniversary service or like a worship night or when we can, we try to do a big United service because there are people, uh, some of y'all have been coming to Trailhead for a long time and, and you come to the same service and there are people that are part of Trailhead Church, part of your family you haven't even met yet. And, um, and, and, and so we love to get everybody together into a big family gathering when we can. And we used to do that at the Wildy, but we've outgrown that space. And so um, this year we're going to be over at uh, EHS, uh, Edwardsville High School. We're going to be meeting in their drama center. And, um, and so that's in two weeks, a single service at 10 a.m. So don't show up here because we won't be here. And uh, if you show up for this service, you're already going to miss half of it. And so um, 10 a.m. over at EHS in two weeks. Uh, it's a great opportunity, by the way, to invite family and friends. Um, a lot of people will come out for a celebration. So if there's been somebody that, that you thought, man, I, I would love to invite them to Trailhead or I would love to, them to get a taste of our community, this is a great opportunity to invite them because it is, it is a unique and special event. We're going to get together and, and have a huge celebration service. We're going to be singing and opening the word and, and uh, just celebrating the grace of God in us and the grace of God through us. So that's in two weeks. And then starting February 11th, we're beginning our fall study. Our me, fall. Uh, winter, spring study. Um, we're going to be looking at the book of James. The book of James is an incredibly practical and challenging and honestly incredibly encouraging book. And we're going to be studying the book of James starting on uh, February 11th. So that's four weeks out. Uh, some cool developments. We got some really, really good feedback from the Invitation to More series and we developed uh, booklets to, to help people just take notes so they can reflect on the sermons and, and, um, and, 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 and engage the text. And, and so we've taken that idea. We got such good feedback. We, we have a team on it, and we're actually developing a study book for the book of James um, that is going to really hit three stages. It's going to help you engage the text before you even get to the sermon. It's going to equip you to take notes during the sermon, and then it's going to um, create some, some conversation questions as well as some thought-provoking material uh, for our community groups to help people in community um, continue to dig into the text. Because at the end of the day, I'm not really that interested. You're talking about my sermon. I really want you engaging the text because that's the authority and that's where life change happens. And so um, I'm excited about that. Those books will be available uh, at the beginning of the James series. Now, for the next four weeks between here and there, we're going to be sitting in the book of Hebrews. Um, so we had this little four-week window and I was just praying about what to do with it. And 
I was just led back to the book of Hebrews. So that's where we're going, y'all. Grab your Bibles. Let's go to the book of Hebrews. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the chairs around you. Uh, and in our Bibles, we're going over to page 1001, 1001. Uh, to Hebrews chapter 1. Um, why are you flipping over there? Why did I choose Hebrews? Hebrews has really a special place in my heart. Um, the book of Hebrews is uh, the book that, if you want to put it this way, led me to the Lord. Um, I was 17 years old, a freshman in college, um, came from a really kind of jacked up and, and broken background, um, didn't trust God, didn't trust the scriptures, definitely didn't trust the church. Um, and, um, and I went to this little Bible college because it was the farthest I could get away from home and have my mom still pay for it. And, uh, and so I ended up in Dubuque, Iowa from California. And um, I met a 59-year-old freshman there by the name of Tom Dean. Um, he had spent his life playing cards on the bridge circuit. He was brilliant. And and by God's grace, um, me, a 17-year-old punk rock skater from California, and him, a 59-year-old card-playing genius um, who always wore a bow tie. I loved that bow tie. He had a shock. He looked like Oral Redenbacher. Shock of white hair, bow tie. Anyway, one night I was, I'm like, here I am at Bible college, and, and um, all I'm doing is getting into trouble. Um, maybe I should actually read my Bible. I had never read it before. So I went to him, and I said, what, what's your favorite book in the Bible? And uh, he said, the book of Hebrews. So that's where I started. Uh, I picked up my Bible. I opened the book of Hebrews. It was the first thing, um, uh, the first book I had read from cover to cover. I had read a few verses here and there before, but, um, but I read it. And that night, by the time I got to the end of it, I didn't understand most of what I read, but I knew Jesus was better. I mean, that was like the clear. God spoke to me in that word in, in a way that um, is still powerful to me to this day when I reflect on it. Um, the Spirit opened up the text, and even though I had no idea about the Old Testament stuff, um, it undid me. And, um, and then when, I launched, when we launched Trailhead in 2011, um, it was the first book I preached through, primarily for the same reason, um, because I love, I love Hebrews, and, and I'm like, man, if that's the book that God used to, uh, to bring me to himself, then, then maybe that's a great place to start for God to bring about a new church. And uh, so we preached through the book of Hebrews. And here's the bottom line, you guys. That was kind of crazy on both counts, right? Um, because the book of Hebrews is, is theologically deep. It is, it is rich. It is rewarding. But it is incredibly demanding. Um, and, and here's the thing. It is worth digging into. Um, and, and I'm going to recommend that over the next weeks, you read the book of Hebrews. Uh, maybe a couple times. It's really not that long, but at least at least read through it once and, and do it slowly. You know, d- take a notebook and, and jot down some questions and, and make some observations. Interact with the text. Spend some time, if you run across something you don't understand, l- looking something up and, and reading a little bit. But, but here's the thing, especially for those of you who have been here over the last six weeks as we've moved through the Promise series, you're ready because that series really helped lay some solid groundwork for you to engage the book of Hebrews. Understanding the history of, of covenant history um, will really help you understand the tensions that, that are being unpacked here. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish believers during a very, very unique junction in human history. And, uh, and I'm going to put the, the chart up of, of, of covenant history that I put up last week. Um, and I know we haven't read our text yet. We're getting there. Um, but um, uh, the reason I'm doing that is because I want you to see how unique this is. Um, this week gives a visual, il- or excuse me, this chart gives a visual illustration of covenant history, right? We talked about the covenants of promise. Adam, Noah, Abraham, David, and how each of those promises that God made for, for the God, I will take you home. I will, I will give you an inheritance. I, I will give you a name. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to the entire nation. I, I, I will bring in a righteous reign in which goodness flourishes and, and evil is finally triumphed over. All of those promises find their greater fulfillment in the new covenant. When Jesus shows up and establishes a new covenant, we find all of those promises wrapped up and, and made even bigger than they were made to begin with, right? But alongside the covenants of promise, there was another covenant called the Old Covenant, the, the Mosaic Covenant, the Law, right? The Ten Commandments and the 613 other commandments that were part of it. And, and, and Jesus, as a Jewish person, was born under that law because it was a covenant made between God and the nation of Israel. And every, every person that was born under that law 
um, was born under its curse because nobody could earn its blessing, right? They, they simply couldn't obey. So it says if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you, if you disobey, you'll be cursed. And Jesus was the first Jewish man ever born who completely fulfilled the law. He, 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 he earned its blessing. He earned its payout in a sense. And, and so now the, 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 the old, old covenant law is a, is a covenant fulfilled, right? It's been paid out. The benefit has already been claimed by the person of Christ and been given to us by grace as those who are now in Christ, right? And, and um, so here's the thing I want you to catch is, is there was a season there. Can you imagine how difficult it would be if you were, if you were born a Jew under Jewish law right after the resurrection of Christ for you to understand the full implications of what this means, right? If you were born, because the Jewish law was incredibly demanding. I mean, it, it regulated what you wore, what you ate, when you got up, when you went to bed, how you said your prayers, when you took a day off. I mean, what you could do and who you couldn't do it with and, and, and where you would do business. I mean, it, was, it, it regulated every aspect of the Jewish life, right? And so for a season, especially in the very, very beginning, um, the church was predominantly Jewish, right? The, the church exploded at the place and at the time of the resurrection in Jerusalem, during the Passover. So you had thousands of people becoming believers at the very time, at the very place of the resurrection, which hugely important, right? It says a lot about the power of the resurrection and, and the authenticity of the early church's witness. But, but there was an explosion of new believers. And here's the thing is, is they were all Jewish and Christian. And so many of them actually believed you had to become Jewish to become a Christian. You had to become a proselyte to Judaism to become a follower of Christ. You had to, to come to the New Testament through the Old Testament. And it took time for people to understand that the Old Testament was no longer in force, that the Old Testament had been fulfilled, that that covenant had been, been fulfilled and, and they were no longer under the law. And as New Testament believers started living in grace and growing out the principles of the New Covenant, it created tension between them and their, and their, and their Jewish brothers and sisters and their families and their community. In the beginning, Christians and, and Jews, they, they coexisted quite happily right? The Christians were just called followers of the way. They were seen as a sect of Judaism. There was really no tension. But as, as, as the Christians became more and more um, able to live out, they understood the freedom of grace. As they started living out the law of love instead of the law of Moses, it created more and more tension between them and their Jewish culture. And so what ended up happening is, is they started getting persecuted, and they started getting excluded. So they, they lost business deals. And here's the thing. When you were born Jewish in that world, Man, there's a really, really strong sense of, of inclusivity and a huge sense of exclusivity. So they only interacted with each other. And so if you became an outcast from the Jewish community, can you imagine how much pressure you felt? Because you couldn't just go join another community. You couldn't just go blend in with some other culture. You, you became a true outcast. You, you really sensed that, that sense of, I'm home, but I'm alienated from the very people that I used to think were home. And so the early Christian Jews felt a tremendous amount of pressure to go back, to go back to Judaism, to leave the new covenant, to say, man, this is too high of a price to pay. This is too hard. There's too much suffering, right? And so the book of Hebrews, <laughs> it's called Hebrews, right? It's written, Hebrews is the, the Jews, right? It's, it's a book to Jewish believers, Hebrew believers, in this little window of time between the resurrection of Christ and A.D. 70. And you're like, why AD 70? What happened in AD 70? Well, that's, that's when the temple was destroyed, right? There were, there were during those, those period of time, during that, that 40-year window between the resurrection of Christ and AD 70, the Jews were still offering sacrifices in the temple. There was still a full expression of, of Orthodox Judaism, um, and, and Christians and Jews were interacting and trying to figure out what it even looked like. Um, but by AD 70, there were, the temple was destroyed, the, the sacrifices came to an end, and they've never been renewed. And in that little window, there was this tension. Where do we go? Do we go back, or do we move forward? This book was written at that time to those people. Um, and the thrust of the book is this, you guys. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Don't go back. He goes through the Old Testament and compares Jesus to, to Moses and to Aaron, to Temple. He talks about crazy people like Melchizedek, and, 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 and he's moving through all this craziness. And, and basically his thrust is this, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. So it was a crazy place for me to start reading the Bible. 
because it's full of Old Testament references. It assumes from a, all the Jewish people that read this in the first century would have had a thorough education in Old Testament scriptures and Old Testament theology. He assumes all that. I had none of that, right? I didn't know the difference between Mount Zion and Mount Sinai. I couldn't have told you who in the world Melchizedek was. I had no idea, right? Um, but but it, was, it, was, it was powerful because here's the thing. God is speaking through this letter not just to that initial audience, but to us today. It was a perfect place, I believe, to launch the church. Honestly, it really shaped my preaching. It was a really challenging book to launch the church in. You know why? Because, because every single week, the main point is the same. Jesus is better. It's like every week I get up, hey, y'all, big idea today. Jesus is better. You're like, yeah, that's what you said last week. I know. I know. I'm going to say it again this week. Different illustration. Different place in the Old Testament, but Jesus is better, right? And we taught through this book, and, and here's the thing. I, I think it really did. It, it, it fit my preaching. It definitely fit my heart. There, there are different kinds of preachers. Some preachers are all about the big show and making sure it's entertaining and engaging and make sure people don't fall asleep, and that's great. Uh, there are other people that are really all about the sticky idea, right? They have one sticky idea that they want to stick in your head, and they want you to think about it all week long, so they say it a thousand times, and it's always really catchy. I'm more like a dripping water faucet. I am, right? If water drips on a stone long enough, it'll make an indent. You know what I'm saying? And so I bring the same message over and over and over again. Jesus is better. Grace is better. New covenant is better. Love is better. And you know why? Because I know my heart. And my heart gets hard too fast. And it turns to performance and it turns to pretending and it turns to comparing and it turns to envy and it turns to greed. And what I need is the constant drip, 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 drip of the truth of the gospel because it's the only thing that will in the end break my hard heart. And so that, that's what we're doing. Next four weeks, I'm going to be a dripping faucet, y'all. Uh, Jesus is better. That's the big idea for today, if I didn't already tell you. Um, and so here's the thing. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. So follow along as, uh, as I read this out loud. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. All right, jump, jump over to chapter 2, starting in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery." For surely it is, not angels, he, it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you guys, the letter really opens abruptly. Unlike a lot of the other letters we've studied, he doesn't kind of come out like, like a lot of the other letters be like, hey, this is Paul the apostle appointed by Jesus Christ to the church gathered in Ephesus, right? It's like, hey, this is who I am. This is who I'm writing to. And here's a nice warm greeting. Man, we just jump right out of the gate, right? God spoke a long time ago to a lot of different people, but he has spoken to us in these last days by his son, right? There's, there's no identification, right? We don't know who wrote this, right? He doesn't ever say, right? We, we can tell a lot of things about the person, but we really don't know, and, and, and I, would pro- I would say probably the majority of scholarship believes that it was the Apostle Paul. Um, I disagree. I think it was Barnabas, mainly because it annoys the people who, thinks it, who think it was Paul. 
you know, and because here's the deal, we don't know, right? The author left himself anonymous on purpose because in the end, what he's saying is Jesus is better. Jesus is the focus. Look at Jesus, right? This letter doesn't rest on my opinion or my authority or my personality. And, and so I think it's best to kind of leave it there. But, but the author, man, he jumps right into the deep end of the pool. And, and you're going to see that he, he assumes that his readers have a pretty thorough Old Testament knowledge. If you just glance at the page, you can see all those breakout quotes. Those are all quotes from different places all over the Old Testament. And the whole book's like that. He just randomly grabs stuff from all over the Old Testament, assuming you're going to know where it came from. Like, like, oh yeah, I know where that came from, and oh yeah, I remember that. Um, because he assumes a, a very high level of, of Old Testament theological literacy um, because he's writing to people who would have had that. And so um, he starts quoting from Old Testament texts, and he's supporting an incredible argument. So this is the argument. Jesus is both God and man. And because he is, he is uniquely qualified to be our hero because he is, he is better, right? Take a look at verses 1 through 4. 1 through 4 in the Greek is one long sentence. Um, the author uh, of this text was um, very fluent in Greek and used quite complicated um, uh, uh, grammar. But, but just listen, man, long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, right? God revealed himself through angels to, to appointed people who would then speak to the, to the nation of Israel on, on God's behalf, right? But in these last days, he has spoken to us like an authoritative. He, he has spoken by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he created the world, right? Pre-existence of Christ, right? Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. What we see here is this, this, this tension that Jesus is, is both with God, right? Because we, we have God the Father being spoken of, and, 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 but at the same time, he's being spoken of as God, right? He is talking about the Trinity, this incredibly complex and weird doctrine that we have no choice but to believe because it's right there. This this idea that, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each God, but there's only one God. There's three who's and one what. And the more you try to understand that, honestly, the more your brain will hurt because it just makes no sense. There is no logic that can make that work. But, but that's the way God has revealed, that there are three individual, unique, and equal persons, but they are the essence of one God, right? And, 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 and the author here um, makes a very, very clear statement to the deity of Jesus. Now, some would argue um, against um, a lot of what we believe, that, that the idea of the deity of Jesus developed over time. Uh, that's a pretty popular argument in certain circles today, that, that you don't see Jesus as being spoken about as God in the earliest Christian writings, and, and that that idea developed over time as the church kind of got away from, from uh, the events, and, and, and slowly they started giving attributes of deity to Christ. And, and I find that whole argument rather rather silly. Hebrews is one of the e earliest letters uh, written in, in the New Testament. It was written somewhere between 50 and probably 50 or 60, right in that range, which would have, would have put it anywhere from 20 to 30 years after the resurrection. And, and, and what we see right here is that the deity of Christ is no developing doctrine, right? This isn't a hint at the deity of Christ. This isn't, uh, well, you know, maybe we can think about him this way. This is a clear, provocative declaration of the deity of Christ. In fact, it's one of the clearest um, in, in the New Testament. Everything God is, Jesus is, right? Any Jewish reader who read this, if they weren't a follower of Jesus, they would have been offended, right? Deeply offended, right? When Jesus said, I and the Father are one, the Jewish leaders that were around him stooped down to pick up rocks to put him to death, to stone him, because blasphemy was considered a capital offense. This would be a blasphemous description of Jesus, to a Jewish reader if they weren't firmly convinced that Jesus himself was, in fact, God, right? That, that he is the radiance, the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, that he upholds the universe 
by the word of his power. He actually has omnipotence, the attributes of God. So you have a clear and unambiguous assertion of the deity of Christ, and yet you also have a clear and unambiguous assertion of the humanity of Christ. Take a look at chapter 2, verses 14 and 17, right? Verse 14, since therefore the children, and that's a reference to, to us, uh, people who need uh, Jesus to save us. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of these same, these same things. He, he was incarnate. He, he became flesh and blood. That through death, right, he became human so he could die, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Drop down to verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be made like us. Not, not like, like human. Everything it means to be human is what he was. He had to be made like us in every respect, minus sin, because sin is not necessary for humanity. It was an intrusion into human experience because of our rebellion. So he became everything we were intended to be, right? He made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to make satisfaction for the sins of the people. He was eternally and absolutely God, but he became human. He took on flesh and blood. He became like us in, in every respect except for sin. The early church father, Athanasius, um, said this, remaining what he was, he became what he was not so that he could make us what he is. Did you catch that? Remaining what he was, God, he became what he was not, human in order that he might make us, broken, sinful, rebellious humans, what he is, righteous, holy, and beloved. The immortal clothed himself in mortality so that he could deliver us back into everlasting life. This is the clear and unambiguous teaching of the early church. This is the clear and unambiguous teaching of, of Hebrews 1 and 2. This is what he's asserting, right? And, and this is the foundation of the author's assertion, right? When, when, when Barnabas says that, that he is fully God and fully man, he's saying he's a better messenger than, than how God used to communicate. Man, he is a, a better messenger. God has spoken to us in these last days by his Son. He is better than angels. And the whole, when you read through this chapter, you're going to see there's this ongoing comparison between Jesus and angels that, that he is a better deliverer of truth. And, and that's the pattern you're going to see throughout Hebrews when, when you read it. Jesus is better, right? Jesus is better than this. Jesus is better than that. And then in between those, you're going to find these warnings, right? So Jesus is better than, than Moses, all right? Because Moses built the house, the house of Israel, through the Mosaic Covenant. But Jesus is the son over the house, right? So Jesus is better than Moses. And then there's a warning. So don't turn back. Don't walk away from your faith. Don't go back to, to what you think will promise you life. You know, your, the acceptance of your friends or the inclusion of your community or the cessation of persecution. Don't, don't go back, right? Jesus is better. Jesus is better than, than Aaron, right, who was the beginning, the first high priest in the Levitical priesthood, right? No, Jesus is in the, the priesthood of Melchizedek. Man, he's a better priest because he doesn't have to offer sacrifices for himself. He shows up and, and he, he offers sacrifices not first for himself but for all people because he's innocent. He's, he's the better sacrifice because the, goat, boats, goats, the goats and bulls of the Old Testament had to be sacrificed night and day, right? Because the sin never stopped. Jesus offered himself once and for all because he was the perfect sacrifice that could bring peace to your conscience and cleansing to your soul and could satisfy the righteousness of God because it brought genuine uh, 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 satisfaction to God on behalf of our sin. He's better. And in between each of these is these warnings. Don't go back. Don't go back. It's better. Jesus is a better messenger than the prophets or the angels who informed them. Now, the angels were, were glorious messengers of truth, but, but Jesus embodied the truth, literally incarnated the truth, took on the flesh and blood because, not only because he became human, but because in his humanity, he entered our suffering. In other words, he was the message of God that didn't just deliver a message. He became the embodiment of that message, and he met us at a place where we could hear him. He actually met us in our place of suffering and pain. Take a look at verses 10 and 11. Starting at verse 10, for it was fitting that he this would be God the Father, 
for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. All right, this is some crazy deep stuff, and uh, I hope I can do a good job unpacking it. He starts off by saying, it is, it is fitting. <laughs> it is fitting, listen to what he says, it is fitting that God the Father, in order to bring us to glory, should perfect his son through suffering. That makes no sense to me. I mean, really, it makes no sense. It is fitting. It, it is fitting. It's appropriate that God would perfect his son in suffering because I broke shalom with God, because I offended God, because I broke God's law, because I rebelled against God. It is fitting that, that Jesus should be perfected in suffering because of what I've done. That's audacious. That's crazy. That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense, you guys. That, that would be like me showing up to you and impounding your car because your neighbor made bad financial decisions and fell into debt. And you're like, dude, what are you doing? Hey, it is fitting that I should impound your car because your neighbor was irresponsible. That's crazy. And yet that's exactly what God says. God says it was fitting. Not because it was fair, but because it was part of his plan. It was fitting because God was determined not just to enact justice, but to act in love. It was fitting because it was necessary for God to work out his plan to redeem and restore what had been lost through our rebellion. It was fitting that the founder of our salvation should be made perfect through suffering. So what does that mean that he was made perfect through suffering? Didn't, didn't Barnabas just argue that Jesus was God? Isn't God already perfect? So how could God the Father make Jesus perfect through suffering if he was already perfect. And this is where we need to kind of wrestle with some words here. The, the Greek word for perfect, teleos, um, has some nuances. When we talk about perfect, we often mean morally perfect or morally without flaw. And so the idea of him being perfected indicates to us that there was a way that he had to be morally improved. That's not what this word means. This word does mean perfect, but it also means to bring to completion, to bring to wholeness, right? So, so to bring some, he was, he was completed through suffering. You see, that, that's not a whole lot better. <laughs> what does that mean? Why would Jesus, who was God in the flesh, need to be perfected? Why would he need to be completed? Because it's not talking about Jesus' moral perfection. It's talking about his perfect ability to save. In order to save us completely, he had to complete the mission that had been entrusted to him. God not only had to desire to forgive us, he had to provide the payment that would make forgiveness possible. He was an incomplete savior until he died and he rose again. Because it was through the death and the resurrection of Christ that propitiation or satisfaction with God was won on our behalf God perfected him as the forerunner of our salvation, as the founder of our salvation through his suffering. It was fitting because it was necessary. And I love this title. He's called the founder of our salvation. Greek word for founder, archagos, it means somebody who founds, right? Somebody who goes ahead and, and begins something new, uh, uh, shows up and founds something that wasn't there before that others get to reap the benefit of. But, but the word literally means to be the first to go before. And so it means a founder, but it also means a forerunner. It means somebody who's a trailblazer, somebody who, who shows up and cuts a path that never existed so that others can travel that path and then goes before them on it. We're told that he is leading many to glory. And so there's this powerful image that he is the trailblazer, the forerunner, the hero who blazes the trail back to glory for a lost and sinful humanity. You guys, he entered our humanity. He took on flesh and blood. 
and then entered our death. He took the weight of our guilt. He took took the darkness of our shame. He took all the weight of our inadequacy. He took the penalty of our cosmic treason. He, He entered our humanity, and then he entered our death. But instead of being swallowed by it and consumed by it, he blew a door out the other side and then says, follow me because I'm going to take you someplace way better than this. By entering our death and our suffering as an innocent substitute, he was able to defeat our enemy and crush his head and invite us to follow him. He became like us so that he could make us like him. Now the craziness continues in verse 11. Uh, In verse 11, for he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. The word sanctify literally means to set apart for a holy use, right? So, So Jesus was fully sanctified. He was set apart for the glory of God. He lived in complete submission to God. He lived in in the presence and the unbroken uh, uh, communion with the shalom of God. He was sanctified. He was holy. He was set apart. We are sanctified because of the work of Christ. He has set us apart once again for the glory of God. He has set us apart for holiness, not because we've earned it, but because he, he gave it to us as a gift. Both those who sanctify and those who are sanctified, Jesus and us, all have one source. Now, not surprising, um, there's a little bit of theological debate because if there's ever two sides to be found, you will find scholars on either side arguing. And so what is this one source that we share with Jesus? Well, some would argue that it was, in fact, our common humanity, that because Jesus became human, we're all of one source, we're all humans, and that makes him able then, as the, the, uh, the leader of a new humanity, to lead us back into the glory of God. Others would say, no, it's not the common humanity. It is the the common sharing of the divine nature, that that because Jesus died and rose again for us, we can be forgiven of our sin. We can be pardoned. We can be declared right. We can be justified so that that we are uh, actually legally able to reenter the holiness of God. He, He, in fact, indwells us with His Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit comes and dwells, a new believer. So we've actually become partakers of the divine nature. And that's of the one source, that, that we're both sharing this new divine nature, that Jesus became human so that we could t- taste the divine. And, and my, my position is yes. That's my position. Um, I think it's yes. I think it's both. Um, I, think, I think it's the tension of the whole thing. Jesus became man to bring us back to God by making us once again partakers of the divine nature. So we have a shared humanity, and because of his work, we have a shared experience of his deity. Not that we are God, but we are once again in communion with God and we're empowered by God and have the presence of God. You guys, the point is this. He entered our common humanity so we could enter into his common glory. He had to be made complete through suffering in order to make us complete in our redemption and our restoration. And as a result... Man, the end of this verse, that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. I don't know that I can unpack the overwhelming privilege and blessing. Jesus is not ashamed of you. The word brothers literally means from the same womb. Jesus looks at you, and he is not ashamed to be so intimately tied to you. He says, we're we're of the same stuff. We're family. To have the holy, righteous Son of God. The pure expression of the glory of God. The one who holds the omnipotent power of God. Look at me and not be ashamed is an overwhelming and inexpressible privilege that should break my heart. But the reality is I know how quickly I grow cold to this honor and I can talk about it as if it were just a theological idea instead of a profound relational truth based on an even more profound relational sacrifice that God became man that he might suffer in my place and die that I might be delivered to glory. He is not ashamed to call us those who come from the same source, from the same 
You guys, now you can see why he's a better messenger. Because he doesn't just bring good news. He is good news. He is the embodiment of the good news. He isn't just revealing truth. He's the embodiment of truth. He doesn't just talk about grace. He reaches out and relates to us in the very presence and act of grace. He meets us where we are and takes us where we could never go. And the author of Hebrews is saying, why wouldn't you want to follow him? Why? Is there a better messenger or a better message? Is there a better good news? You are tempted continually to go back to your good news, whatever it is that's going to deliver you into life, that that you can be a success, or you can make money, or you can find pleasure, or, or you can get fame, or you can, whatever it is, you are tempted to listen to this other messenger and go back. How ridiculous would it be not to follow this Savior, the one who not only is for us, but loves us so profoundly that he died and rose again, that we might be like him. Made new. He invites us to follow him through the path that he blazed right through our death back to his glory. And it's grace. It's all grace. It is love upon love and grace upon grace. You guys, this has profound implications. Take a look at verses 17 and 18. That's what we're going to wrap up. Verses 17 and 18. Therefore he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Every respect. Profound to think about God learning how to walk. Learning how to use his muscles skinning his knees, growing fatigued because he's hungry. He became like us in every respect, having emotions of, of sorrow and loneliness, of betrayal. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he became like us, he can meet us where we are right now. The God who never knew weakness now understands weakness. Why? Because he has been made complete through suffering. He has experienced what he could never experience. He understands fatigue. He understands limitations. He understands pain. He understands isolation. He understands. He understands. He has been tempted in every point like we've been tempted. And we need to make a distinction because when we think of temptation, the English word for temptation for us is very specific. What we mean is that we're being presented something that's inappropriate and we have a responding desire that wants to take hold of it. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm being tempted, like I, uh, you know, there's a hidden IRS, whatever, and I can cheat and I know I can get away with, you know, $1,000 and nobody will ever catch me, right? But I got to lie to do it, right? There's an internal, I'm like, yeah, I want that $1,000. You know, government steals from me all the time. I can steal from them. What's the big deal? I find a thousand ways to rationalize because there's an answering desire to the temptation. Jesus never had an answering desire because Jesus never had a desire to find life apart from God. Jesus never had a desire to try to find the shalom of God apart from the presence of God. Jesus always knew that the path to the fullness of life was in relationship with his Father. So there was never an internal answering desire. But here's the thing in the Greek, the Greek word for temptation is the exact same as our word for trial. Right? A trial is something that comes on us that tests our strength. It's a sorrow, it's a fatigue, it's a pain, it's a difficulty that comes on us that presses us and, and, and encumbers us and, and, and weighs on us and it tries our strength, right? This Greek word can be translated either temptation or trial. And here's the thing, Jesus was tried and tempted in every way like we are yet without sin. Yeah, but see, if, if he can't, really be tempted, if he's never had that internal desire to turn away from God, how can he relate to my temptation? How can he meet me in my temptation? Well, I think we have a basic misunderstanding of temptation, right? So when I went to that Bible college years and years ago, I remember one of my professors 
um, wanted to give an illustration, and it was quite memorable. He brought two students to the front of the class, two guys, um, and, and one of them was Mr. Homeschool. Uh, he, was, he was buttoned down. Uh, he was a high performer. He was super intelligent. He was incredibly nice. Um, he, he, he was polite. Like, he's the kind of guy that if he knocked you down in basketball, he would reach down and help you back up, right? I mean, he was aggressive, but he wasn't, like, uh, abusive. He's, he, was the, he was the dude, man. He was like, we all were like, man, that's, uh, that's a guy, right? And, and then there was another guy brought up who was a lot like me. Um, honestly, I related a lot with him. He came from a really rough background. He, he, he didn't necessarily totally get the Christian thing all the time. Uh, he often said the wrong thing or did the wrong things, and, and, and we all knew he was kind of a mess, right? And so he's like, hey, we're going to do this thing. So this is, I'm going to put this meter over their head, and, and, and this is the temptation meter, okay? So I want you to clap, and that signifies when you think this person's going to give in to temptation, Right? So you stop clapping when you think they're going to give in. Right? So he stands over, over the dude that was like me, and, and, and everybody starts clapping, you know, and, and the meter starts going up, and, and everyone keeps clapping because they're a little bit too polite to cut out that quickly. And, and then it starts dying off, right? It starts dying off, and then there's only one or two people clapping because they're like his buds, you know, his dudes, and they have to support him. And then finally, it kind of stops, right? And that's about it, right? Because everybody knows this guy died a long time ago. He gave in way back there, right? Okay, so that's him. So he comes over to this guy, who's, who's the button-down Mr. Homeschool, and he's like, all right, you guys do the same thing for him, right? And, the, and everyone's clapping from the get-go. It's way louder, and, and, and they're clapping, 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 clapping. And, and then you get up to about here, and, and you can hear it getting a little softer, and then it starts dying off a little bit, and, and, and then it stops. And then the question is, who knows more about temptation? And everybody's like, well, him, right? Because he just gives in. And no, 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 that, that means he may know more about sin. But who knows more about temptation? He resisted way longer, which means he's tasted way more of it. And, and he has probably experienced levels of temptation this person never gets to because <laughs> this person's so quick to run to it. Like, he's outrunning temptation, right? But this guy... He has resisted long. So here's the thing. How, how much did Jesus endure? Like the whole thing. He never gave in, which means he has endured temptation's greatest assault. Jesus can relate. He understands. Now, he didn't give in, so he's not going to relate with your sin and say, oh, yeah, it's okay. But he relates with the temptation. He relates with your weakness. He relates with your struggle. He relates. He knows what it is to be tried. He knows what it is to be, to be tempted, right? His suffering didn't just pay the price of your sin. It equipped him to understand your frailty. I mean, let me ask you, when you're feeling isolated and weak, when you're feeling shame, and sorrow, when, when you are feeling misunderstood or betrayed, when, when, you, are, when you are tempted to run to that, that thing for, for medication, you know those things we self-medicate with? Some of us, it's shopping. Uh, some of it is, it, is, it, is, it is pornography. For some of it is, you're, you're tempted because that, that, whatever it is, that loneliness, that insecurity, that hurt, that pain, whatever it is, that, that helps numb it, right? So when you're tempted to go there, don't hide Jesus is not waiting for you to fix yourself for you to find his approval. He understands your frailty. He understands your weakness. Fam, he's, he's got you. He's there with you. He doesn't want you running away and fixing yourself. He wants you running to him. Because here's the thing, when we run to him in our weakness, he meets us in his, in our, in his grace. He embraces us in love. He doesn't, he doesn't shame us, man. I'm waiting for you to man up. I don't know when you're going to get your act together. He doesn't, he doesn't come down on us. He doesn't, he doesn't like, like that was one too many. Man, he meets us in unconditional, unreserved love. He embraces us because the author of our salvation was perfected through suffering. He understands our pain. And here's what happens when when you receive love in that place of isolation, something magnificent happens. He renews your courage. Where you were like entrapped in your cowardice, 
He gives you strength to move forward in faith. Where you are entrapped in weakness, he gives you strength to finally have resolve. He, he is the one who gives you the strength to become what he has sanctified you to be. He's not waiting for you to work it out so that you can somehow earn it or be it. He wants you to draw near to him. He's going to love you and refresh you and strengthen you. And he's going to speak comfort to you. And he's going to renew your courage and your strength. You guys, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. And he is better. He is better to whatever you're turning to to try to numb yourself. He is better than whatever you're turning to to try to prove yourself. He is better than whatever you're trying to turn to to make yourself lovable or worthwhile. He is better. He is better. And he is drawn near. All right, you guys, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. And uh, we're going to share communion in a moment. But first, let me pray for us, and we'll go into a time of response. Father, we, we thank you that you are a humble and good and loving God. And Lord, I admit that even as I use those words, I'm like a child talking about concepts that I don't understand because I cannot come up with a word that is big enough or profound enough to describe who you are or what you've done. I don't have the intellectual capacity. I don't have the emotional capacity to fully understand or to fully receive the love that you have demonstrated and given to me. And because of that, I often mistake my limitations for yours. I often assume because I can't fully understand your love, you are not as profoundly driven by that inexpressible love. Spirit, will you break our hearts anew? Because it's in the breaking that we find a new capacity to see, to receive, to experience love. Break us of pride. Break us of our self-defenses. Break us of our pretending and our performing. That we might joyfully and boldly draw near to find grace to help. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.